In June of 1992, representatives from 154 countries gathered in Rio de Janeiro to negotiate a framework through which the world could address the emerging threat posed by anthropogenic global climate change. The resulting treaty, referred to as the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, took effect in 1994. And in 1995, the first ever Conference of Parties, or COP, was held in Berlin. This year, the 21st annual COP is being held in Paris, and hopes are high that an agreement will be struck to finally make a serious dent in global emissions. But the process hasn't been without high hopes in the past. Can Paris be different from Copenhagen, Bali, or Kyoto before it? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Our guest today is HKS professor Rob Stavens, the director of both the Harvard Environmental Economics Program and the Harvard Project on Climate Agreements out of the Kennedy School's Belfer Center. Professor Stavens, great to have you on. Welcome. So, uh, for someone so devoted to global climate change agreements, this uh, seems a bit like your Super Bowl. Well, this is a very important time in the history of the negotiations, and more importantly than that, it's a very important time in the history of attempts to deal with the problem of global climate change. This is the 21st COP. Many have come and gone. Of course, they have different uh, levels of importance, uh, but there's been a kind of sense of disappointment around a lot of them. Uh, I'm thinking of 2009 in Copenhagen especially. Uh, what makes Paris different? Why is it uh, so important to this process? Well, this is a very important uh, point, at least potentially an important point in the negotiations, uh, because of the fact that currently 14%, 1-4, of global emissions are covered by the standing international climate policy, which is the Kyoto Protocol. But with the structure that's been taken for the Paris Agreement that the delegates are now considering, uh, as of last week anyway, fully 90%, and it may be by 95% by the time the negotiations are over, of global emissions are covered. Uh, so that's a tremendous difference. Now, that's a necessary condition for meaningful action on climate change is that you have scope of action that includes all of the key countries. Uh, and we, it looks like we're going to have that coming out of Paris. Now, that's a necessary condition. It's not a sufficient condition. Also necessary is going to be sufficient ambition to eventually address the problem seriously. But it's important to recognize in that regard that what's taking place now in Paris is only a first step. This is the first set of the so-called intended nationally determined contributions, the INDCs from each country. Proposals that are on the table from the United States and from other countries would have these reviewed and renewed every five years. But even this first set of initial INDCs is itself quite significant. So the best estimates at this point is that without the Paris Agreement, that business as usual would take us to the point where global temperatures as a result of increased concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere would exceed five or even seven degrees centigrade above the pre-industrial level by the end of the century. With the Paris talks, the predictions are that that we would instead find something on the order of 2.7 to 3.5 degrees centigrade. Mm -hmm. Now, that's above the 2 degrees centigrade that has become the political target, but it's still a pretty impressive first step. Mm -hmm. 
So what about Paris? Uh, like I said before, you know, there have been high hopes going into these conferences before uh, that haven't necessarily been met. What makes Paris a different situation that there is so much confidence that an agreement's going to come up? Well, in order to really see what the difference is, we have to go back historically to the year 1992, which is when all of this started. So that was when uh, countries from around the world met in Rio de Janeiro at the so-called Earth Summit. And coming out of that Earth Summit were two conventions or agreements. One was the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, and the other was a Convention on Biodiversity. Now, that Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, had in it a very important principle, and that is that the delegates recognized that, well, climate change is a global commons problem. That is, greenhouse gases mix in the atmosphere. It doesn't matter where they come from. They're going to have the same impact. It doesn't mean impacts are the same everywhere on the globe, but that it doesn't matter where the emissions come from. That means that for any individual jurisdiction taking action, they're going to incur the costs of taking action, but the benefits are distributed globally, so they'll only get a share, a very small share of the benefits of what they've done. And what that means then is that if you think about this in economic terms, that for any participant, any country, any region, any state, any city, the benefits, the direct climate benefits it receives of taking action are going to be much smaller than the costs it incurs. Even though globally benefits might be greater, much greater than costs. That's a global commons problem. That brings about the free rider issue. So back in 1992, the delegates recognized this. That's the fundamental science, economics, and politics of climate change. They recognized it, but they also recognized something else. They said that, well, although we're all in it together, although it's a commons problem, some countries are richer than others, and some countries have already contributed more to the stock of accumulated carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere because they've been industrialized countries for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. And this principle then became referred to, the shorthand for it is Common But Differentiated Responsibilities, or CBDR. Now that's a principle of international distributional equity, and it's a sensible. Uh, position, certainly. But what happened at the very first conference of the parties, as you said, we're now at the 21st in Paris, at the first, which was in 1995 in Berlin, is that that principle was interpreted in a very specific way, that CBDR. It was interpreted as a dichotomous distinction between the Annex I countries, Annex I because they're listed in an appendix, the Annex I countries and the non-Annex I countries. And that was that the industrialized countries at the time, more or less the OECD countries as of 1995, would take on targets and timetables, responsibilities. But the other 150 countries in the world would not take on any responsibilities. That became codified two years later at COP3 in Kyoto, Japan, in the Kyoto Protocol, which has targets and timetables for the industrialized countries and nothing for the others. Mm -hmm. The result of that then was that, first of all, it was not ratified by the United States. On a bipartisan fashion, the Senate vote on a resolution was 95 to nothing at the time, so it wasn't ratified in the United States. Mm -hmm. Canada dropped out, Russia dropped out, Japan dropped out, and what's left is Europe 
and New Zealand. That's the 14% of global emissions that are covered by the Kyoto Protocol. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, it, doesn't co it covers 0% of the growth in emissions because all of the growth in emissions is not within the industrialized countries. Our emissions now are essentially fat, flat to declining every year. Mm -hmm. Rather, the growth in emissions is in the large emerging economies, China, India, Brazil, Korea, South Africa, Mexico, and Indonesia, if we include deforestation. And the Kyoto Protocol doesn't cover them. But now, starting actually in Copenhagen, and since then gradually accelerating in 2011 in Durban, in the Durban Platform for Enhanced Action, at another one of these annual December conferences of the parties, was a new principle, and that is that all countries should be under a common legal framework in an agreement to be reached in Paris in 2015 for imp implementation in 2020. Mm -hmm. So that's where we now stand. It is a very significant break with the history of climate negotiations and one which therefore holds the potential of really advancing the ball down the field. I think it, for the Kyoto Protocol, uh, one of the issues with it was even for the OECD countries that were, or the Annex One countries rather, um, that were, you know, that made commitments to hit certain targets. Uh, it was based on a self-reporting uh, scheme that wasn't necessarily completely reliable. Uh, have there been attempts to find ways to make sure countries are keeping to their commitments? Well, there's a big issue in the international negotiations, and that is whether or not there will be transparency within countries so that other countries can, in, sense, in some credible way, observe what they're doing. This has been a big point of contention in the negotiations between the United States, on the one hand, which has always been arguing for transparency, and China and some other large emerging economies, but mainly China, on the other hand, who have said that that claim that call for transparency could turn out to be a violation of their sovereignty as a country and so that's been the nature of the fight now the approach that's being taken now with these uh intended nationally determined contributions is that each country is stating what they can do on the basis of essentially their domestic political situation and China has, at least in terms of lip service, leading up to the Paris negotiations, has been saying that it's willing to sign on to something which does provide greater transparency than in the past. Mm -hmm. But we have to wait and see until the talks are finished. There have been a couple of bilateral agreements between the United States and China, which is significant because uh, while China is the largest uh, carbon emitter, yeah. almost double the United States, the United States is uh, about, about double per capita emitter, uh, you know, compared to China. Can you uh, explain what that, I mean, does that bode well? Does that mean China and the U.S. are both ready and willing to make some kind of deal? So I think that the joint announcements from uh, China and the United States, the first in November of 2014 in Beijing, the second in Washington in September of, of this year, of 2015, have been exceptionally important. In fact, when I was in Lima uh, one year ago at the climate talks, 
when I noticed that whenever there were problems that were holding up the talks or the delegates were getting frustrated, that the joint announcement, which then was only a month old, from China and the United States was essentially a wind at their back. It pushed them forward. It gave them encouragement. And I heard this over and over again, and I I witnessed it. So they were very, very important, both of these, um, because of the fact that the United States and China are the two largest emitters. The United States uh, is no longer, as you said, the largest emitter, but the United States cumulatively is. So we still have the largest stock of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But China is rapidly catching up. And depending upon relative rates of economic growth, as well as policies, China will overtake us in that regard, too. So the joint announcements by China and the U.S., Uh, are probably, I would say, I said it at the time and I still believe it, the most important development in the climate negotiations in the previous 10-year period. So uh, given the importance of those, are they important just because they lead into this broader agreement or are they really the the main main show here while the, you know, these big conferences, these summits, are less important? Well, I'd say that their greatest importance is that they're pushing forward the international negotiations. So that's the key. However, even on their own, uh, the the contributions that have been announced, because those eventually became the INDCs for the two countries, uh, themselves are important. So mm-hmm. the U.S. has essentially doubled the rate under its previous commitments under Copenhagen and Cancun of reducing emissions, doubled the rate per year of doing it. And China, for the very first time, actually pledged that it would peak its emissions. It said the year 2030. I I think it'll happen well before that. That was a significant departure from the past. Now, it's not of the same type of contribution, as you can see, as the United States. It's not a statement of emissions reductions. It's saying we're going to peak our emissions in a future year. But that goes back to the heart of common but differentiated responsibilities. They're recognizing that it's a common problem. Even to peak their emissions in 2030 requires, according to a recent study out of MIT, immediate policy actions. So it's significant. And it is a great example to the rest of the world of an industrialized country and a rapidly emerging economy of both pledging reasonable actions. As we move uh, through this, I mean, this is going to be a two-week process. Uh, Coming out of it, what would you say would be your markers for success? So markers for success, first of all, will be sufficient scope of action, um, over 90%. And that we're surely going to have because we're we're already there. So that will, and that means that you have a real foundation for going forward. Secondly, a marker for success would be that the delegates have agreed to some mechanism for revisiting and ratcheting up ambition over time, such as on a five-year basis, which has been the U.S. position. Um, China seems to be interested now in accepting that five-year renewal. So that would be a second marker of of success. Uh, A third one would be that there is a legitimate beginning of a structure for this fund of industrialized countries and large emerging economies helping the poorest countries of the world. And that's the finance issue, this $100 billion per year fund that's been talked about by the year 2020. I'm not saying that all the money has to be on the table by the end of Paris, but that there needs to be a structure that's credible for going forward. And I think that will probably be achieved as well. Uh, Another one, 
is that it's important that the delegates avoid getting bogged down by unproductive debates that split them apart rather than bringing them together. And one of those would be this subject that goes under the title of loss and damage. And that is the notion that not just as a voluntary fund, the $100 billion to help with adaptation and mitigation in poor countries, but rather that there would be a responsibility, a requirement that the richest countries would be paying for loss and damages, quote unquote, due to climate change particularly in the most vulnerable countries, and that would be small island states as well as sub-Saharan African countries that might have increased drought. Mm -hmm. The problem with that from the perspective of the richer countries of the world is that sounds like a prescription for unlimited liability for bad weather mm -hmm. because we can't distinguish between a weather event and climate change. Right. So if, that, if, that, if they insist on that, that's going to lead to the breakdown of the talks. I don't think that will happen, or at least I hope that won't happen. Is that the only major impediment to uh, an agreement that you see? I think that's the major impediment. There surely is, are also going to be uh, desires voiced from developing world for more money into the $100 billion fund. I think one problem in addition would be that there are a small set of countries, these are the so-called ALBA countries, uh, the Bolivarian Alliance from uh, uh, a small number of socialist Latin American countries that have not been very productive, I must say, in terms of their, the way they behave in the climate talks. But <clears throat> one of the things that they want is to insist that all INDCs, that the actions, the targets of INDCs are achieved within countries' own borders. Mm -hmm. And that would just make it hideously costly. It would kill international carbon markets. It wouldn't be productive. That would be something else which would be you know, very, very unfortunate to see go forward. Uh, recently, the State Department shut down what was to be the Keystone no. XL pipeline from uh, Canada, which was going to carry you know, uh, very heavy crude oil uh, from Canada down to the Gulf of Mexico. I suspect that the Obama administration um, saw these talks coming up and perhaps it was part of their thinking. Was that an important decision for climate change in general? Well, I can't say what was the thinking internally of the administration, but I, I can say <clears throat> what the significance was for the climate talks. But first, I think we should recognize that in terms of climate change itself, in terms of greenhouse gas, in particular carbon dioxide emissions, uh, the decision to refuse the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline was is probably not in the long term of significance. Now, when oil prices were as high as they were last year, the Keystone pipeline was going to, that, that oil was going to come out one way or another. It was going to be developed, and it's either going to go on rail and barge or on pipelines. And in fact, going by rail is far more environmentally risky than going by pipeline. We've known that for, for decades. So it would be counterproductive to stop it environmentally. Now, with the loyal, low oil prices that we have right now that uh, may continue for at least, let's say, one year is the current thinking, with these low oil prices, then in, it is the case that 
the oil fields would not necessarily be developed without some low-cost means of bringing out the oil. So it's, it's more difficult to comment on that now. The other part, though, is the economics of it. So just as I've said that it wasn't very important for climate change, also it wasn't important economically, that the number of jobs that were going to be created by the Keystone XL pipeline are purely during the construction phase, and then it's something like 50 or 60 jobs nationwide because of because a pipeline is a very efficient means of right. moving product. It doesn't take a lot of labor f to maintain it. So it wasn't important economically. It wasn't important in terms of climate change, but it's very important symbolically. It was important symbolically, obviously, to advocacy groups within the United States who were pressing for that. But in terms of the Paris climate talks, it's quite important symbolically to other countries because it gives the United States more credibility uh, on this issue of climate change. And, you know, the United States has not had credibility in the international talks for most of the history of these. And now together with the INDC that the U.S. has put forward, there is also this move by the Obama administration. And so that means green groups and green parliamentarians, for example, in Europe, are going to see the U.S. on a much more favorable basis, which will probably give the U.S., greater leverage in the negotiations. Professor Robert Stavins, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Professor Stavins will be in Paris for the duration of the conference. You can find dispatches from his activities there at hkscop21paris.tumblr.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter. 